Hello, everyone, and welcome to Industrial Info's 2022-2023 North America T&D Project Spending Outlook. My name is Peggy Tuck, and I will be your moderator for today's webinar. This webinar is proudly sponsored by Shermco, North America's largest provider of electrical services for wind and other renewable energy in the U.S. and Canada. Shermco technicians and engineers are technology leaders in uptower generator services, repairs, and upgrades, improving the reliability and efficiency of wind turbine generators. Their certified teams provide scheduled and emergency services for substations and collector systems, as well as acceptance testing and commissioning of new installations, wind, solar, storage, biomass, and lots more. You know, with the transmission into greener types of power ramping up, questions are looming about how to integrate these new sources of power into the grid, and also the critical need for new transmission infrastructure. So over the next hour, IIR's experts are going to discuss these issues and trends that are going to be impacting project spending in the T&D sector this year, and then looking ahead into 2023 as well. Our presenters today are Shaheen Chohan, IIR's Vice President of Global Analytics. Shaheen has been with IIR for 11 years, and he's based in Industrial Info's Dubai office. He has a background in consulting, strategic marketing, and analytics. Also joining today is Britt Berg, Vice President of Research for the Power Industry. Britt has been with IIR for over 30 years, and he leads teams of global researchers who are responsible for the traditional power market and industrial energy producers in other industries. And also joining today is we have IIR's power specialist, Brock Ramey. Brock works with and trains research teams on utility or industrial-related energy production projects. He's also been with IIR for 17 years, and he acts as a liaison between sales, customer service, and the research department. Now, our panel's going to be taking your questions following the presentation, so if you'd like to submit a question, just look over to the side of your screen. You'll see an area to submit that question. Please feel free to do so at any time during the presentation. And when it's all over, we'd like to invite you to participate in just a brief survey following the webinar. So let's get started and get down to business. Here is Shaheen Chohan, IIR's Vice President of Global Analytics. Uh, thank you very much, Peggy, for the introduction. And I'd really like to just kick things off and, and, and get you very quickly into the discussion, Britt, if I may. Uh, really just to talk about uh, and, and help set the scene for some of these top line themes and trends that are going to be shaping the T&D investment activity. Now, obviously, uh, the electricity sector has been really at the forefront of decarbonisation, that shift for many years now. So has the agenda, uh, you know, dramatically changed for T&D? Uh, over, the, over the last 12 to 18 months, or, or is it still pretty much the same? Well, it's something that we've been seeing taking place for some time, Shaheen. I, uh, by the way, it's good to be with you again. Um, but uh, uh, it's something that we've seen going on for quite some time. And, and here's just some of the things that are driving the, the spend for that. Of course, we, we talk a lot about uh, you know the, the need to add uh, transmission to support all the renewable uh, sources that are being added, all the variable uh, renewable energy sources that are being uh, added. And of course, that's in response to the, this march and this push, ongoing push towards decarbonization. But the fact of the matter is we, we still have a very uh, antiquated uh, grid as well. So there's in, in conjunction with the, the new uh, that needs to be done, there's, there's a lot of expansion and updating uh, to to update the grid, modernize the grid, and of course, uh, improve resiliency of the grid. Uh, all the retirement that we've seen, of course, with uh, uh, a lot of the mainly coal facilities has changed, it, changed the dynamic as well. So those are the drivers behind it. Of course, there's some roadblocks along the way too. We can take a look at those. Yeah, so uh, I mean, th that, agen that agenda, Britt, has been 
as you said, playing out. What it, what is interesting to to possibly help us touch on is is some of those legacy constraints and challenges that you've been presenting for quite some time. Have T and D operators and developers managed to kind of get over some of these these older older issues, or do they still prevail as well? I, I think there's certain things that continue to go on. I mean, we're uh, first of all just the overall scope uh that that i just outlined uh it requires tremendous uh investment to expand the uh the grid to to put in the high voltage lines that are needed uh to support the uh the influx of renewable energy uh and and we have a a backlog into our uh you know into our uh, isos and and regional transmission organizations from not just the uh, T&D sector, but from the generation sector as well. So that that kind of slows down the whole permitting process as if it weren't slow enough to begin with, right? So it, it just adds to the problem. Of course, we're seeing some other constraints as well. We're seeing uh, uh, supply chain shortages uh, affecting some of these projects too uh, for the, uh, the the components that make up the wires and cables and conductors and transformers and uh, all all the rest of it that goes into building substations and transmission lines and things like that and and still you know some some challenges on the regulation and legislation side of it as well uh, of course. If we if we move forward and take a look uh, uh, at at the overall spend for the power industry as a whole, um, uh, it, it's dominated by uh, the the spend for the power industry in North America is dominated uh, by renewable energy, uh, primarily that's solar, uh, along with co-located battery uh, storage that we see going in now. Uh, and this is just looking at, at high and what we classify as high to medium uh, probability projects. Uh, so, you know, solar represents about 50, over half of, of what we're tracking. Uh, wind is still a huge uh, piece of that as well. You know, the the wind and solar have been driven by a number of things. Tax uh, credits to date uh, have driven a lot of that. Uh, other things that we'll talk about in just a second, uh, offshore wind, we're beginning to see uh, that come into the into the picture as well. And there's going to be uh, requirements for transmission to support that segment of the industry as well. You can see that almost a quarter of the spend that's proposed over the next over this year and next uh, is dedicated to T&D. So that represents a, a big piece of it. Uh, of course, there's standalone battery storage, and then uh, still out there, and I think uh, something that, that still has an opportunity to, to meet our generation side, I, I think there's there's more opportunity for natural gas-fired facilities as well. Okay. We talked uh, about the... Go ahead. Yep. No, I just wanted to come back to that wind component. Um, yep. it, it's, it's an interesting one because... You know, President Biden's positioned offshore wind in particular as being a really big key component of his decarbonisation plan. Correct, but yes. it's it's quite a big challenge. Are there, what what are some of the the kind of the, I guess the challenges or impediments to that offshore development? Yeah, well, we 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 made a tax credit available, an investment uh, a tax credit for offshore wind uh, of about thirty percent. But the challenge is uh, the current administration set the roadmap for 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by the year 2030. Uh, if we look in comparison, uh, compare that to what Europe has done, and I've, I've said that on, we on this on webinars before, uh, it took Europe 20 years to build 30 gigawatts of, of offshore wind capacity. So, and uh, you know, we're, we're talking about eight years from now. So I don't think we're going to build 30 gigawatts of wind by 2030, to be quite frank with you. I think we're going to see quite a bit of it move forward, uh, but I, I don't think it's going to be as aggressive as that. Okay. Now, Britt, you, you kind of touched on some of the, I guess, policy or, or some, some of those policy frameworks that have been put in, in place. Now, obviously, to affect change, 
it can often require I guess more formalized targets to be put in place certainly at the localized level and, and and much of the momentum that we've seen in the broader renewable space has been through to date these things called renewable portfolio standards as you mentioned now these are obviously nothing new we saw California's um, you know RPS program established way back in 2002 if I recall but ha we, we've, we've obviously seen increasing numbers of states now coming to the uh, portfolio standard table under various approaches as well as many states also expanding some of their existing target what does the current picture look like and are we seeing you know across the board states now taking up uh, some kind of mandated targets well as as you say uh, the, the rps standards are are nothing new by any means california texas uh you know other many other states across the country have had rps standards in place for quite some time the five there that you see that have an asterisk beside them <clears throat> have actually expanded their renewable portfolio standards just last year delaware illinois uh, Nebraska did not have one, and they they don't have a formal RPS standard. They have a voluntary uh, renewable energy target. Uh, North Carolina uh, has said they're going to be at 100% renewable by 2050. Uh, Oregon uh, expanded theirs. So you can see some very aggressive targets there. The ones in dark green uh, have uh, formal uh, RPS, uh, renewable portfolio standards, or clean energy standards. Uh, the ones in light green, Nebraska, Indiana, Indiana, South Carolina, have voluntary targets. Uh, the ones in kind of the, the, the pale uh, orange there or yellow uh, have standards that have expired. And then the ones in the, in the lighter blue or gray there uh, represent states that have no RPS standard. Uh, it, it's something that continues to drive uh, the development of renewable energy, and I think it will for quite some time. If if we go uh, one, one step further here, uh, you and I can talk about what we've seen. So I talked about the retirements on the first slide, and to the left, you can see what we've identified since 2011 uh, that is retired. Most of that has been coal to the tune of about 105 gigawatts. Um, and uh, I think more of that's going to take place. In fact, if I look between now and the end of 2030, there's another 70 gigawatts of coal-fired capacity uh, scheduled to close. That's affecting our grid as well because our grid was designed to support these older baseload reliable uh, uh, sources of electricity, and they've been replaced to a large degree, a little bit of natural gas, some natural gas, uh, but uh, there's a lot of renewable energy being built too if we look at the right-hand slide there. Uh, all the wind and solar that has been built uh, to, to fit in, and so that's that's what's driving the need uh, for, for a lot of this T&D spending certainly okay. the transmission side. Right. Now, um, getting into the kind of the, 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 the guts of this now and and, folk, and shifting gear a little bit, looking just at T&D projected spending. So um, I think, Brock, we're going to be bringing you in now. And, and could you sort of tell us and talk us through where are some of those top hotspot market regions now that are, that are kind of driving the T&D spend and, and also why those particular markets? Sure. Um, you know, we we have uh, the Midwest, is, which is leading the way on uh, T&D development, uh, and then we're followed by uh, neck and neck pretty much with the West Coast and the Southwest. Uh, a lot of these are uh, mid-range projects uh, that are being developed, uh, anywhere from uh, 240 kV down and a lot of this is to integrate renewable energy, like Britt was talking about. Uh, there's a lot of spending uh, trying to get these, this renewable energy to the grid uh, and also to solve some of the congestion issues in those regional areas. So a lot of, a lot of that spending that we're seeing is part of trying to get that stuff uh, or the renewable energy out to the grid. And 
it's a lot of different sector or pieces to that, not just new transmission lines. Okay. Yeah, so sticking with that, I mean, this this slide that you pulled together, it really sort of takes the the total spend that you just talked about there, and it kind of breaks it out into some of those big broad block capex uh, types. Um, taking each one of these, and in particular, I, I mean, the the transmission line spend is that would you say primarily still dominated by overhead lines or are we seeing a slight shift in in how the operators and developers are, are moving forward with transmission and also what are some of those challenges that are prevailing for for, for those uh, big transmission projects um for the most part it's still overhead lines we are seeing more regionally uh underground lines uh there's a uh, some very strong proposals in california for their lines to go underground uh, and then depending on where the project crosses, we're seeing more underground spending or underground line spending. It just spend, depends on the regional area and the cost. Uh, underground line transmission lines cost significantly more than above head, uh, overhead, sorry. Um, as far as the holdups or, or the issue, what's going on with the larger uh, capacity lines, it depends on where they are and where they're running if they cross uh, multiple or they cross state barriers then we get into a lot of issues uh, we have uh, uh, probably about a dozen uh, high kv transmission lines that are crossing multiple states and they have to go through the isos for approval the utility and the state uh, and that's one of the ma major backlogs on the on the larger side so, uh, Brooks, just sticking with that theme about that bottlenecking that appears to be developing. I mean, roughly how long are you trying? You're seeing a, a typical, let's say, a big capex transmission line. How long does it typically take to go, come through the permitting process and then, you know, spade in the ground? What's the duration it, now? Um, if we're looking at the larger lines, uh, it could take several years. It depends again uh, if it's it's faster if it's uh currently if it's utility and it's interstate when we start crossing uh merchant uh transmission lines and crossing state lines and being more competitive that's where we get a lot of these issues uh the mid-range projects uh the capex spending we're seeing a lot more of uh 240 uh, 138 we're seeing those approved faster and moving ahead but there's still a lot of issues uh dealing with the permitting process for transmission lines and it really it's not uncommon brock it's not uncommon to see something being permitting for five or six years is it uh, five or, or six more. years five or six yeah. years or longer yeah 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 so um just shifting gear then and i guess moving downstream uh for want of a better word to part of the the tnd supply chain into the distribution are the drivers and i guess the impediments, the issues, the same as for the distribution side of the, uh, the the coin as they are for the transmission space. So, is it same similar similar challenges, or are we seeing a completely different agenda for the distribution side? The distribution side, we're seeing more movement on. Uh, it those are uh, rural or regionally developed projects. Uh, a lot of times, they do not have to go through a lot of the ISO approvals depending on what they're doing uh, distribution projects can uh, range anywhere from reconductor to substation upgrades and things like that so we do see that moving more steadily than what we do the larger transmission line projects okay and um, I'm interested could you just expand a little bit more on that cybersecurity concern you know obviously you know current current climate uh, you know out there security grid stability reliable that's a big issue at the moment is there are we seeing a little bit more investment going into that aspect of uh, of, uh, of the infrastructure yes we are um, smart grid technology and cyber security is a major push especially uh, here recently uh, there's been some uh, federal regulations being looked at to expand uh, the SIP uh, requirements and last year alone, there was $8 billion 
uh, as we stated, spent on nothing but substation automation. And it ranges from security to stability where we're trying to, or the utility owners are trying to integrate a self-healing grid uh, to uh, limit the power outages that they have. And then we see integration of microgrids uh, and, thing, and things of that nature. We're seeing more spending on the distribution side as well because we're seeing more growth in the EV section, the electrical vehicle section. So we're gonna see more of that spending as we uh, requirements for charging stations uh, increase. Mm -hmm. Now, um, flipping that distribution spend around, and this is uh, something that you've been tracking you know, in a lot of detail. Can you talk us around where those distribution spending hotspots are and in particular why we're seeing you know that activity in those particular markets um it just depends we're seeing a lot in california uh we're seeing again a lot in texas where there it's sporadic throughout uh they are uh, we have a lot of uh, isr spending in the northeast on the distribution side uh, southeast, uh, inter our, some of the utilities there are doing a lot of distribution integration and upgrades. So it depends on what their their TSP plan is, transmission extended plan is, and what, where they're integrating that at. Okay. Now, guys, we're going to shift gear a little bit, and I wanted to turn to battery storage, probably, I guess, one of the key enablers, really, to supporting renewable development, although not all of it, as we saw with with Brit's slide earlier on, is you know associated you know or with paired solar, for example. Um, although although currently it does make up a, a large proportion of, of of the you know currently operational and planned storage capacity that's come online right now. But guys, can you explain firstly some of the I guess the applications? that battery storage solutions can play and then let's talk about some of the limitations of what some of the current technology uh has and 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 you know what are developers doing or looking at to try and improve on these yeah sure i'll, I'll uh take a stab at it first brock but uh uh, the, the right now, what we're seeing is about 90% of all the uh, battery storage facilities that are are being built are lithium ion, uh, using lithium ion technology, and of course that that has created a bit of a challenge too, uh, because uh, as we know, there's also not only is there a push to add battery storage. Uh, to support the the electric utility industry, there's also a push to move to electrical vehicles as well. And uh, I believe that the stage is being set. We we haven't seen any huge impacts yet, uh, but I, I think the stage is being set that we're going to see, uh, you know, a, a, a tightening of the supply for the for the lithium ion batteries uh, is that plays out. Um, there's some other technologies in development and some other te technologies that are, are moving forward. There's the flow batteries. Uh, there's one called Iron Air that uh, Form Energy is working on in conjunction with Great River Energy. They're doing a demo project uh, uh, for that technology uh, because the discharge rate for lithium ion right now is four hours. And uh, that that's just a drop in the bucket to what we need, right? Uh, the technology that Form Energy is talking about is somewhere, you know, we don't really know yet, but somewhere in the in the hundred hour uh, range, which would be much more uh, efficient. There's safety issues with lithium ion that that we don't have with iron air, and and some of the other technologies. So so there are other technologies uh, in development. Uh, as far as the applications, I mean, there's a number of different uh, 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 applications for battery storage as well. Uh, the arbitrage, uh, where uh, batteries are charged during times of uh, 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 low demand for electricity, and then when demand goes up, they can be discharged. Also, they can be used uh, to support the solar 
uh, you know, the the solar uh, farms and the wind farms to store energy from there. Uh, batteries can also be used for grid support uh, to maintain grid frequency and uh, as a reserve uh, uh, type uh, application or ancillary uh, type application as well. Um, you know, the, the tax credits, there is a tax credit in, in play right now for batteries that uh, are co-located with a renewable source and get 75% of their electricity from a renewable energy source. They can uh, participate in the tax credits, but uh, there's, there's not really uh, a, a tax credit per se. You know, we've talked a lot about the, in the past, about the Build Back Better plan. Uh, last night, I just noticed something that uh, Senator Manchin has come back out and said. He, he had said he may be open to passing pieces of that. Uh, last night he came out and said there is no bill back better. So it's it's a roller coaster on these tax credits. A lot of proposals for tax credits for battery storage, renewable energy, transmission lines, all of that in there. Uh, but, you know, trying to get our Congress and, and administration to agree, agree on anything right now is very difficult uh, to put it mildly. Um, so I think the other thing that we're going to have to look at later down the line, too, is other types of energy storage, uh, things like more pump storage uh, facilities and, and things such as that. Brock may have something to add to that. Uh, I mean, the only thing I have to add to that, Britt, is we're seeing a lot of integration in battery storage in the microgrid uh, sector as well, uh, either on the industrial side uh microgrids and also in the utility side microgrids they're they're developing so we are seeing yeah. a lot of the integration uh data uh, centers go ahead no go ahead didn't mean to step on you go no ahead. worries uh data centers are looking at uh currently uh looking at a lot more battery storage integration with backup generator diesel generators uh and it just depends on what that industrial application is for site, but we are seeing a lot more of that. Right. The the only other thing I was going to add, Shaheen, is uh, we've we've seen to this point we've seen most of the battery storage that's been developed has been standalone, but that's changing. Uh, uh, I, I think we're going to see the battery storage that's installed over the next couple of years, two or three years, uh, about 60% of it's going to be co-located versus 30% that's, uh, you know, or 30 or 40% that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, standalone and so forth. So we're, we're seeing right now it's it's pretty even what we're watching in terms of uh, 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 under development and scheduled to kick off. But if we look at things that are scheduled to start up over the next couple of years, it, I think that dynamic's changing a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Brock, you, you, you nicely led us into some kind of segue into the microgrids that you just mentioned. And obviously, there's been increasing attention uh, directed towards these investments, certainly over the last couple of years. Do you think we will obviously see an increase in spending in microgrids and, and new capacity development going forward. And how dependent do you think that spending is on how the battery storage technologies and also the cost of battery storage uh, plays out over time? I do believe we're going to see a lot, uh, an increase in spending uh, as uh, we go to uh, grid uh, resilencing and a different diversified grid, uh, we are going to see more microgrid spending, more microgrids coming in and into play. Uh, we have different types of setups for microgrids. Uh, some can actually are in island mode, which are on the industrial sector, and then some that actually trans, uh, transfer power back out to the grid during peak. Uh, as far as battery storage, battery storage and uh, microgrids is, are going to face the same challenges as they do with the standalone supply chain issues. Uh, we are, as far as the pricing, we are seeing more of these being incorporated, but it depends on where the project is in development and whether they're going to integrate battery storage or not. Okay. Hey, hey, Brock, the, you were saying something the other day about the military and the microgrid development. 
there has been uh, pretty much for three administrations a big push for microgrids to be installed on all the military bases. Uh, we see that spin continuing. There's been a lot of those that are being completed. And then as far as, or we've just learned that fiscal year 2023, there are another 23 microgrids that are being proposed on military bases. Um, so that spending is gonna increase there. Well, uh, Brock, I, I do want to stay with you just uh, actually in our final slide before we move into the Q&A. Um, can you just actually just recap for us all what are some of the uh, what are some of the kind of current roles that microgrids have played uh, to to date, uh, and and do you think the role of the microgrid may change over time? Okay. Well, to date, uh, microgrids have several different applications. Uh, there's uh, three different sectors that they can feed into are designed for. One is an in to support an independent industrial or uh, complex, and they can, what they usually do, separate themselves off of the grid during a natural disaster or rolling blackouts where they can keep power generating to that complex. Uh, we see those in municipalities and industrial uh, sectors and institutional sectors like colleges, universities. Uh, we mentioned the military. Uh, we're seeing a lot of spend on the industrial side away from utility right now and have been um, now as far as larger integration of microgrids we do have uh, microgrids that are basically what we call dual usage uh, they keep uh, power and keep the industrial sector safe and secure during uh, natural disasters and things like that but then they also are able to uh, support or supplement the grid itself by firing up and sending power out during peak or uh, issues with the grid itself or the local area. The, as far as growth and more integration, we are. We are going to see more integrated uh, microgrids uh, uh, in, enchanted uh, in Texas, has over 200 commercial microgrids that they operate uh, in, in just that state. Uh, so we're going to see commercial, industrial, utility, utility microgrids are slower to move than the other two sectors. They will pick up pace, but they have a lot more challenges, to, but we do see that expanding. Okay, gentlemen, uh, I think that actually brings us really nicely to the end of our formal discussion. So Peggy, could I bring you yes. back in and maybe we could, um, you know, get into the Q&A? Absolutely. And first of all, I want to say thank you to all three of you, Britt, Brock, and Shaheen, because that was some really good, um, useful information. And we do have some questions, and so we're going to get right to them. Um, first of all, let's start off with looking forward, who going forward um, will be driving the policy change and also the momentum within that T&D space. Now, is it going to be FERC or is it going to be the Department of Energy? Uh, it, as far as uh, driving change in terms of permitting and things like that, it, it falls under FERC and then the, it goes into the regional uh, transmission organizations and the independent system operators and things like that. Now, one thing that we did not talk about, or I, I did not mention on the on the driving factor slide when we opened up, is there's there's a challenge in front of us right now by our current administration to move to zero carbon uh, electricity by 2035, and that's just mm -hmm. right around the corner. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. And um, it is, many studies have said if we support that, uh, we'll have to double the size of our transmission grid uh, to, to support all the renewable energy that would be required. Um, and uh, uh, 
right now we have 180,000 miles of transmission lines and only about 14,000 of those have been built in the past nine years or so. So a uh, huge challenge. Uh, I think it's going to have to be a combination of things. I think it's going to have to be FERC. It's going to have to be legislative uh, agendas and uh, uh, that that open up the door to make these things uh, develop faster and are permitting faster. Brock may have something to add to that, and and possibly possibly the tax credits as well, because we're talking about a tremendous amount of uh, investment that would be necessary to meet that goal. Do you see that actually? Because as you said, the the expansion, the infrastructure is going to be the most critical part, and do you? See See that um, the monetary aspect of that being one of the big challenges and hurdles. I believe it's a big hurdle. Uh, it, we're we're talking billions and billions of, of dollars to uh, to put in the, the 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 additional infrastructure to that. I mean, Brock, do you see that moving forward without uh, tax credits and other incentives to do that, and and maybe streamlining permitting? Uh, processes? Um, as far as streamlining processes, it's uh, interesting that that was brought up. FERC just came out with a notice to propose a rule that's going to streamline that process throughout the ISOs and help integrate that. Uh, there's also some joint task force uh, between some of the ISOs doing studies to interconnect uh, sections of their control areas. Uh, as far as renewable energy tax credits, I think that there's going to be a major factor for that as well. Um, are there any leading examples maybe of the transmission and distribution lines that are being aligned with maybe some of the existing corridors that are there, such as maybe rail lines and the highways, that these could actually help create a template for alleviating some of these project bottlenecks that we're facing? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, for a while, there has been different instances where they have ran uh, transmission lines around or uh, following railways, uh, following highways, and the Department of uh, Energy is actually uh, taking a, a stance and doing a lot of reviewing of uh, integrating these existing uh, easements and RO, uh, right of ways for the more development. So they're, it's very interesting because with what they're proposing is if a project gets denied or held up in the state, DOE will stand in and step in and they can, they're looking at possibly approving that project. So we'll see a federal level takeover. The more environment or the more electric trans, uh, transportation we see, the more need for these transmission lines and distribution lines running along highways and different things like that, especially uh, with electric vehicles coming out like they are, you're gonna have to have uh, charging stations at multiple points of travel, and that's something that's being looked at. Okay, we have a question from Kevin, and Kevin would like to um, see if you have any thoughts regarding um, DC transmission. As far as DC transmission, Britt, uh, we're seeing some. We, oh, well, yeah, not not on a grand scale. I mean, we we have seen some of those where they're crossing uh, bodies of water. They'll have a uh, a bay or 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 something like that where they're uh, uh, putting in a converter station to convert to DC and then uh, putting putting electricity through that DC line and bringing it back to AC. But uh, on a large scale DC lines, I have I have not seen it yet. I think the potential's there, but uh, we, we haven't seen it on a grand scale. And the only thing I would add to that, Peggy, is the larger multiple state uh, hundreds of mile projects are being looked at for DC, but they're, saying, they're facing the same challenges that Britt was discussing. Yeah, and I I think where that comes into play is going to be in some of these multi these uh, interstate lines that you're talking about uh, that that take uh, power from uh, 
some of the states that are abundant with renewable energy resources, like if you look at wind power, not every state in the United States can can generate wind power. They don't have the resources for it. So we have seen some lines that have been proposed uh, from some of the states that are abundant and uh, wind power to like the southeastern United States and things like that. But they've they've been very slow to move forward, high voltage DC lines, yes. And, and that was part of the proposal in the Build Back Better plan was to uh, a large investment for HVDC lines. Uh, I think the potential's there, but again, I haven't seen a lot of those taking off quite yet. I think it's on the horizon, though. Okay, Darren would like to know, with decarbonization and the loss of the associated rotating inertia, what are the plans for frequency regulation? We have seen uh, a, uh, many of the uh, former coal-fired generating facilities that have been converted into synchronous condensers to, to help with that. Uh, and I, you know, I we have seen some of that in the past and continue to see that uh, happen. I, I don't have a number for you right off the top of my head, but I could provide that for you. Okay. Um, Britt, I've got one question, maybe both for both of you, but uh, going, I'm just thinking back to the renewable portfolio standard slide, and we saw a few states, and I just you know spotted uh, Florida as an example, where there is no target at all for anything renewable. I can still assume, I'll assume that there are still renewable investments going on there, uh, but why why have some states opted to have not even anything voluntary, let alone mandated? Yeah, they 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 have. Uh, yeah, F, FPL is very active in building solar facilities in Florida. Uh, they're they're building them like crazy. Uh, in Florida, so they they don't have a, re, a formal renewable portfolio standard or clean energy standard, but they they are in a very uh, at the, at the state level. But uh, the the main utilities there, uh, Florida Power and Light, Duke Energy, uh, they they are aggressive in building renewable energy, and and in Florida that comes in the form of solar energy. Would you agree with that, Brock? I sure would. Yes. And, you know, you you were talking about, of course, Darren was asking about frequency regulation and just regulations overall with the issues that are dealing with this industry. Are Do you think that we're going to have to see new regulations in place or will there be some softening of some of the ones that are already in place that's going to help well, boost it? Yeah. We're, we're talking about two things, two different things, actually. Darren's talking about frequency regulation of the grid. You have to maintain the frequency of the grid. If you don't, you're at risk of the grid crashing and and creating a cascading effect that that causes major uh, blackouts and, and brownouts across the country like we did several years ago uh, and, and uh, back east. But uh, as far as regulations on the industry, um, you know, I, I, I I'm I'm not sure. I mean, we've 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 seen quite a few regulations over the past several years that have have played out and affected the fossil, uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry and things like that. I, I I don't see anything else coming along the line as far as formal regulation. I mean, there's there's a lot of people, yes, that would want to impose even more strict regulations on the on the fossil on the traditional power industry than are already in play. I, I don't I don't see any regulations affecting renewable energy that's going to have an av adverse effect at all. Um, but uh, we'll we'll see how it plays out. Um, have there been any delays or impacts to battery storage development, which is due to some of the supply chain issues, of course, and the constraints we're seeing, um, especially from the lithium supply? Uh, not not on a grand scale quite yet, but I think that's on the horizon. Uh, as I mentioned, as time goes forward, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a potential there for uh, major issues. 
uh, the demand for lithium is going is increasing substantially, and uh, so uh, I, I, I haven't seen battery storage projects necessarily canceled because of that. We've seen some delays because of some material shortages and things like that, but I don't know that I can pinpoint that to lithium. It's a lot of the supporting type systems. Hmm. I don't mean to dominate the conversation, guys. If Shane <laughs> or Brock want to jump in here, feel free. Well, I'm going to throw that. I'd like to throw this out to all three of you because Britt, you mentioned earlier on how you know it took 30 years um, for one area of the world to work on certain uh, getting some of these transitions done and making these moves to even just offshore and things of that nature. Are companies or are governments being just too um, optimistic that they can get this stuff done in, okay, we're going to get this done in the next five years, ten years? Well, I'll I'll throw my hat in the ring. Uh, I think uh, I, I do not see us going to zero carbon uh, emissions from the electricity industry by 2035. Uh, I, you know, there's a there's a bigger goal that says that we're going to be at net zero carbon by 2050 as a country. Maybe that will happen. I don't know. I probably won't be here to see that. Uh, but uh, because I'm 59 years old now, so I'm I might not be around to to watch that happen. Uh, hopefully, I'll still be here in 2035, and I think we're still going to have some natural gas fired power plants. I think we're going to still have some coal plants in 2035 um so uh yeah i i think the the plan that's out there right now is very aggressive however this isn't all being driven by government regu regulations this, there's a lot of esg behind this too uh and you know t uh companies that are forming plans to move to zero carbon energy and and utilities all the major utilities like aep and duke and uh you know uh uh, uh FPNL and and many of the others uh, Dominion that have come out and said I don't want to leave anybody out but have come out and said this is our plan we're sticking to it and this is the direction we're headed uh, so it's not all government regulations I think from the government standpoint yes it's it's overly aggressive yeah yeah and I think just touching to that I think uh, the, the, you know, the decarbonization story is is a complex one. It's, it's costly and it's complex, but there are a number of push points that are occurring at the moment. And I think government policy can get us so far, whether they set some supportive frameworks and tax incentives and, 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 and set the scene. But as Brett said, I think we're seeing a societal shift across the board for people to decarbonize their lives. Uh, so we're seeing society pushing back a little bit. And as Britt alluded to, we're starting to see more corporates, so the private sector, stepping into the frame and taking a little bit of ownership. Uh, and it's not because they may necessarily may want to, but they're actually being forced to because the investor side of the, the coin, the banks, the insurers, are also under pressure from their, you know, their, their shareholders to say, look, we are not going to invest in anything that's carbon heavy. Um, so we've got a number of things kind of trying to massage and shape this decarbonisation story. Across the line, we we see governments constantly set targets uh, and milestones and goals, and you know, we often see those goals and targets shift a little bit. The unfortunate thing is, is we probably can't keep pushing, kicking this can down the road for too much longer. Otherwise, we reach a, reach a point of no return where it's actually too too difficult to unwind uh, that decarbonisation story. So, as Britt said, I think there are many moving parts, and I think policy can get us so far. Um, but I think you know, the more support we can get from government mandated, uh, you know, certainly on the tax incentive, we've got to reduce the cost of all this stuff as much as we can. I think that's going to support it. But I'm a little bit like Brit. I think that's pretty challenging to meet those targets under the current framework. Uh, to piggyback, uh, piggyback off what Shaheen and Brit said, yes, uh, renewable energy, our uh, decarbonization is a, is a great thought. It's a great process. There's, we've got a long way to go. 
uh, on the transmission side of that, you can want and desire uh, to be at zero emissions by a certain time. But right now with all the issues with the ISOs, uh, all the issues that are reoccurring, uh, not and just when I say ISOs, on the transmission side and the generation side, uh, like Britta had spoken to earlier, um, there's ISOs that are completely shutting down uh, more projects being put in or proposing to because they're so flooded uh, with new, new uh, renewable energy projects. Um, we have regional utilities that do not have uh, formal interconnect ISO queues that are, are putting a halt on it. Uh, we also have state and local uh, counties and things like that putting moratoriums for renewable energy development for 18, 24 months because they're being overrun. Uh, and then all the delays and issues we're having with the transmission side is it makes it a lovely thought uh, and it'll go a long way with more regulation. But the moving parts are just so dynamic that I don't know. I don't think so. All right. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for all the great questions. If for some reason we didn't get to your question today, don't worry, because someone, one of the experts from Industrial Info, will be in touch, and they'll make sure that you get an answer to your question. Also, I'd like to say, once again, a very special thanks to our sponsor for today's webinar, ShermCo, North America's largest provider of electrical services for wind and other renewable energy project. If you would like more information about their products and services, go to shermco.com. I also want to take just a quick minute because, you know, IIR has a newly released North American Power Industry Outlook. It provides that in-depth analysis for the market trends and the statistics, which are actually driving the major project spending opportunities in the power market. Um, it's comprehensive online tool. It um, is authored by IIR's experts like the ones you've seen today on the show, and it gives you very valuable insight into 2022 and beyond by offering you that detailed spending analysis, not only um, by market region, but also they break it down to fuel type and project type. And it's actually derived from actual projects, which are reported by the research professionals. You can also get quarterly updates that are going to keep you informed throughout the year on actual performance versus the forecasted activity that you hear about. So if you would like some more information about that, go to Industrial Info's website at industrialinfo.com and you'll find lots more information. Want to say thanks to everyone for joining us today. Please don't forget to take part in our little brief survey following the closing. Go out and have a great day and thank you so much for taking time to join us.